Thank you for downloading the podcast from Sunday, October 6th, our second week in the Gospel Project, focusing on the prophet Elijah. For more information about Paragon Church, please visit paragonchurch.com. I would love for you, if you have your Bibles with you, to open up to 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, last week we started our Gospel Project, and our second week of the Gospel Project will be in 1 Kings 18, but last week... We are in 1 Kings 17, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that throughout the week, that with this gospel project that ties in our connection groups, that ties in our kids, that ties in our uh, opportunities to study with a daily discipleship guide, that you guys are able to use that this week, and that it was a benefit for you to, to get deeper in. I emailed them throughout the week. Hopefully, you're able to get that. If you didn't get the emails, we have the hard copies out here on the Welcome uh, Center that you can grab that as well. And just follow along to keep you refreshed, to keep you in line with with what God is trying to do. And uh, as you were here last week, I told you there were three sermons really in 1 Kings 17, and I tackled them all in one day. And I'm hoping you were able to go a little bit deeper with it this or last week. The same thing is going to happen today because we're going to be in 1 Kings 18 and in 1 Kings 19 today. And if you know anything about that, there's really at least two sermons in that. So I'm going to keep it as Christy, as I was reading it to her last night, she goes, that was kind of, and she didn't know what word to use. And I said, servicey? And she said, yeah, you just didn't go really, really deep. And I said, if I went really, really deep today, we'd be here for two hours. So what I would like for you to do is as you're taking notes, as you're looking at this, as you're reading along, to be ready that throughout the week you can just go a little bit deeper. I know there's a connection group tonight that's going to go a little bit deeper. I know there's a connection group tomorrow night that's going to go a little bit deeper. Maybe get involved in those. Maybe take a look at the, at the different ways that you can do that. But also, just in the daily discipleship guide, with your families, as individuals, whatever it might be, go a little bit deeper. So as you're there, I want to just take a little bit of time to, to look back on 1 Kings 17, as we talked about Elijah last week. And as we did... We see Elijah show up on the scene in 1 Kings 17.1. We don't know much about where he came from other than he was part of the Gilead settlers, but God had prepared him to go and have a meeting with a king. And in that meeting with the king, he calls out King Ahab, he calls out Jezebel for worshiping false gods, and then God cuts him off. We talked about the fact that he entered into isolated pain. He goes to this ravine where the ravens feed him, and the water comes up from the ground. And in that, we begin to see a total dependence on God start to form. That total dependence went to an unconditional obedience for him to follow through. Well, we see this unconditional obedience play itself out right here in 1 Kings 18. So if you have your Bibles there with you, we're going to begin to see God's prep work unfold. For three and a half years, God has been working on Elijah, providing for him through the the ravine and the ravens and through the widow and the widow's son, and doing all these amazing things to prepare him and train him for something big. And that something big comes down to one word for us. And that one word for us is choice. He, Elijah, is going to lay down a choice, a choice to follow God, a choice to go through what God has called him to do, a choice to go through what God has called each follower of God to do, a choice. And the choice comes down to a no matter the consequences type mentality, 
And no matter the consequences, will you follow God? So as we look at this story from thousands and thousands of years ago, how does it apply to us today? Well, as followers of God, as people who call ourselves Christians or little Christ, the choice comes down to, do I truly want to follow him or not? No matter what. And those last three words, the no matter what, really play a major role in what we're going to see today with Elijah as well as in our lives. Because for three and a half years, like I said, God has trained Elijah. For three and a half years, he has set him up for what we're going to see today as an epic showdown. There's going to be a confrontation that God is going to ask Elijah to follow through. Now, we have to know that it wasn't going to be something that we could just know that what was going to happen was in Elijah's brain. It had to take time for it to form. And we see that even in our own lives. When we begin to trust God, that trust begins to grow, and the things he puts on us begins to grow. In Elijah, as he goes, he knows he wants to be a part of God's plan. And that three and a half years really, I think, led up to that. So we pick up the story today in 1 Kings 18. For three and a half years, Elijah's been away. For three and a half years, the drought has been on. For three and a half years, the the king of Israel, his wife Jezebel, the queen, as well as the people of Israel have been praying and asking these false gods to bring the rain back, but nothing is taking place. Elijah shows back up on the scene, and he comes to say, you guys have been worshiping the wrong gods. And I'm just going to take a quick little side note here, because oftentimes when I look at Old Testament, and I look at the Old Testament people and the dumb things that they worship, going back to even when Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and they built a golden calf and began worshiping it, like right then, it just didn't, the first thing you think is, is how dumb are they? And I know that's probably not you, that's just me being me, but I'm like, that is so ridiculous. Why would you make something and then begin to worship it? Why would you form something with your own hands, you're the creator of it, and then you worship it? Why would you do that? That just doesn't even make sense to me. And then I began to think about, as a society, we kind of do that already, don't we? Don't we worship the things that we've created? Don't we worship the things that that we make important? Don't we worship money and family and success and sex and all the things like that? The one thing that makes them, I think, less dumb than we are with that is the fact that they understood there was a spiritual aspect to each of those things. That there is something in there that will take our soul and cause our souls to be consumed by it. We miss that. They didn't. So maybe they're not as dumb as we think they are, or maybe we're just a little bit dumber. Maybe somehow in all of that, that we don't understand that whether you are religious or not, or whether you are spiritual or not, we all worship something. We all give worth to something. See, that's all worship is. Worship is worth-ship. That's where the word comes from. It, It tells us that we're putting our primary worth in something. The question is, is what is it? What is it that we give our worth to? And for many of us, the, the answer is something other than God. For many in our culture, something other than God. It's the thing that they find their primary fulfillment in. It's the thing that they find their primary security in. It's the thing that they find their primary identity in. 
And there's so many of them out there. And none of them are necessarily a bad thing to begin with, but I've told you this lots of times before, and this is something we can repeat again. When a good thing becomes a God thing, then it becomes a bad thing. And we take those good things and we give them more worth than God, and that's when it becomes an idol, and that's when it becomes a bad thing. It could be money that you find your security and your identity and your fulfillment in. It could be family or relationships you find your identity and your security and your fulfillment in. It could be success or accomplishments that we find our identity and our security and our fulfillment in. It really could be any of hundreds of false gods. As a matter of fact, John Calvin actually said this, the human heart is an idol factory. We just keep producing idols. We just keep producing things that we want to make into a God. Israel, Ahab, Jezebel, that's where they're at. That's where we see the showdown at. And I think that is also where we are at. So this, this confrontation, this huge epic showdown is just as relevant today as it was thousands of years ago. So once again... If you have your Bibles with you, 1 Kings chapter 18, we're going to be starting in verse 17. A lot of things kind of happen to get the showdown going. We're going to skip over that because there's so much information in this today. You can read about it this week if you'd like. It would be great. But starting in verse 17, it says this. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, the one ruining Israel? The word here actually, maybe yours says, troubler of Israel in your translation. What the word actually is, are you the plague that is all over Israel? Are you the plague? Are you the one that is wreaking havoc on my kingdom? Of course, we see verse 19 or 18, the reply. I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have, because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Are you the plague? Nope, you are. You have brought the plague on yourself. You have chosen to follow after all the other things of the world and not after the one true God. Therefore, this is what has come down. What you have here is a situation of somebody speaking truth into the lives of somebody who is sinning. Now, question here for you is, have you ever had this happen before in your life? Where either A, you're the one speaking the truth, or B, you're the one being spoken to. The general response when you call somebody out on their sin is anger or at least a disownment or a pushing away or you don't really know me. You don't know what I'm going through. I'm going to deny those things. And, you know, even if they're right, we don't want them to be. And this is where we're at between Ahab and Elijah. So what's Elijah say? Let's bring this showdown down. It says, now summon all Israel. To meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. 450 prophets and 400 prophets. That's 850. That's a big table. That's a, can you, I mean, that's a big table to be eating at. I mean, we feed eight plus. Generally, somebody's joining us at our table as well, so there's always somebody in our house. But we have a pretty good-sized table for 9, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that area. This is 850. That's, that's a huge table that he's summoning these people. So Ahab does it. It says in verse 20, All the Israelites are gathered, and the prophets of Mount Carmel, they all come together. Then Elijah approached all the people and says, The question of our day. 
the question that we need to hold on to today, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. Make a choice. Which God are you going to serve? See, the problem is, and maybe some of your translations as you're reading, it doesn't say waver. It says, how long are you going to limp between two opinions? How long are you just going to kind of be flimsy between the two opinions? Which God are you going to serve? See, nobody was fully committed to God at the time, and nobody was fully committed to Baal. They kind of just went back and forth between the two worlds, if you will. Which one's going to benefit me more right now in the moment? I would say that's the same as we have today. And as we begin to see it unfold, he says, which God are you going to serve? And there's lots of times in our life that you have to make a choice. This is the most important one. Which God are you going to serve? God, even when he sent Jesus, had Jesus teach us this thing. When he says, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love the one or hate the other or despise the one and love the other. You can't serve both. So what are you going to choose? Which one are you going to choose? I mean, can you imagine a prophet? Or can you imagine Jesus essentially saying and standing up and teaching, if you're going to serve God, do it with your all. But if you're going to serve any of the other stuff, do it with your all there too. I mean, essentially he says, if money's your God, serve it with all your heart. If that's what you really want, if you have to lie, if you have to cheat, if you have to steal to get it, then do it. If you have to sacrifice your family, do it. If you have to sacrifice your integrity, do it. Do it with all your heart. If that's the thing that you love, love it. Go and do that. If approval's the God, then sell out, baby. Sell out for the thing that you want. Did did you you want approval from others? Do do you want approval to chase that fame, to get that glory? You know, they, they say that fame is more or less pleasing a bunch of people you don't care about and sacrificing the people that you do care about to get it? If you want that, then do it. Sell out. If you want romance or sex, serve it all with all your body. Go and get it. All your fantasies can come true. Love it like that. This is what God is saying through Elijah, and this is what God is saying through his son, Jesus Christ, when he says, choose a God. If you don't want those things, though, and you want to worship the one true God, then love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Go all in. Stop wavering between two opinions. This is a heavy-duty challenge. Stop making God a hobby. Stop making church time a hobby. Make it something that you're willing to go all in. Make it something that these next steps that we're talking about are something you want to see accomplished in your life. Make our core values part of your core values on evangelism and discipleship and worship and connection and ministry. If you want those to be the things that are in your life, go for it. But if you don't, then just leave it alone. Why waste your time? If money is your God or sex is your God or success is your God or whatever it is, go after those things. That is what he is saying. It's what Jesus said. It's what Elijah said. It's what some pastor in Rio Rancho says. Because when it comes right down to it, 
We need to move. Now, the question is, how will you respond? You know how the people in Elijah's day responded? Look at the rest of verse 21. But the people didn't answer him a word. Crickets. Nothing. How many times do we respond that same way? When we know a challenge is there, and then we're just like, you know what? If I just don't say anything, I'll be better off. Instead of being moved to do something. They don't know how to answer. See, they're so far into the world that having anything with God makes them miserable. But they're so far into God that having anything in the world makes them miserable. So you know what they are? They're miserable. And, and they don't know what to do next. And they don't know how to do it next. So then Elijah says this in verse 22. He said to the people, I'm the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut into pieces, and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God, and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers with fire, he is God. And all the people answered, that's fine. And there's no exclamation point or anything. It's just, that's fine. Okay. So, verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. Then call the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull that he gave to them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. This is my favorite part right here. It really is. Because this means that holy sarcasm is okay. All right? Th that's what I read in all of this, is that holy sarcasm is okay. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he has wandered away, or maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. And by the way, all the things says as Elijah describes their God, are things that our God does not do. And so you begin to see him mock them. So what do they do in response? Well, they shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now, we really could go deep here, and I'd love for you to do it in your personal study or in your connection group or whatever family time you have with this, and you can do that. But what I want to see here is just two quick things on false gods versus the one true God. Two quick things on the false god versus the one true God. False gods, they want you to work, or in this case, they want you to dance really hard to please them. That's what the false gods are. Think about how much you have to dance to please money. Or how much you have to dance to please status. Or how much you have to dance to please beauty. Or, or whatever thing it is. How much do you have to work at those things? And how well do we have to obey even our false gods from other religions in order to gain favor? Our God doesn't work like that. See, he gives the gift first. Our working is in response. Second thing is, is false gods want to push you to self-destruction. They want to push you to self-destruction to please them, whether it be money and sacrificing your family and your integrity and all those kind of things like that, or even the ones that say, hey, you need to blow yourself up if you want to have 72 virgins and have three houses on different moons and blah, 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 blah. All the things that we kind of feed into, it's how are you going to destroy yourself to please me? 
You know who destroyed himself for us? Jesus. Completely different. Completely flipped. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to the people, come near. So all the people approached him, and they, he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold about four gallons. Next, he arranged the wood, cut up the bowl, placed it on the wood. He said, fill the four water pots with water and pour it on the offering to be burned and on the wood. He then said it a second time, and they did it a second time. He said a third time, and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, even filled the trench with water. Two quick things here. If you want to start a fire, water is not your helper, okay? Also, if you've been in three and a half years of drought, water isn't something you just dump on everything, okay? So we have two different things kind of being pictured there. Once again, go deeper if you have a chance. If you have a chance. But look what happens here in verse 36. At the time for the offering, the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that you, at your word I have done all these things. Now, once again, we can pause right there and say all of 1 Kings 17 prepared him for this moment, to be totally dependent, to be unconditionally obedient. Because he was cut off in that isolated pain, he had been built for this moment. He says, answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, the Lord God, are that you have turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. All the last three and a half years have led to this very moment. When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Does anybody remember what Elijah's name means? We talked about it last week. The Lord is God. The one true God. That was his whole plan from the very beginning. To bring people back around. Then Elijah ordered them in verse 40, seize the prophets of Baal, do not even let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishon and slaughtered them there. Guess what? That big table just got a lot smaller. Probably had a lot more room at it. There's two more things I want you to see about false gods versus real gods. Our one true God. And that is this. False gods, when it comes right down to it, are powerless. They are powerless, empty, temporary at best. Our one true God, he will answer prayers. Maybe not the way that we want, but he will answer prayers in his time and in his way. He is not powerless. Second thing is, is false gods lead the soul to drought. For the last three and a half years, they've been in a drought. And you know what I mean when I say our false gods, the things that we chase after, will lead us to drought. It'll lead us into a time, and they just really leave you more thirsty. They just really are a mirage that is out there. If you fail them too, guess what? They're going to crush you. Our God is the living water that satisfies when we seek him. And even better, he forgives when we fail him. That is the difference between our God and these false gods. And if you read on, you're going to see that, that Elijah sends Ahab ahead and says, go and eat and drink. Go to Jezreel and go and eat and drink. And he goes up to a mountaintop, back up to the Mount Carmel, and he prays. And he prays seven times. 
See, the first six times, nothing happens. But on the seventh time, a small cloud the size of a man's hand shows up. And he says, all right, it's going to rain. And boom, down came the rains. And he praised God. And then it says, the power of the Lord was on him. And when the power of the Lord was on him, he went and said, you know what? I'm going to go to Jezreel too. Well, Jezreel is about 20 miles away. And he took off running. He outran Ahab and Ahab's chariots to get there. That's the power of the Lord, taking it, running. And he's going. And so you see all of this amazing thing happen on this day. For three and a half years, I've been preparing for this moment. And in the moment, the, 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 from the very first step before Ahab and, and Jezebel, he makes the command. Then God takes him and he shapes him and he does all the things with the ravens and with the widow. He comes back. The fire from heaven comes down. The rain comes after three and a half years. Everything is awesome, right? You better believe it is until we get to 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Like literally just moments almost afterwards. After all the things that he saw, this is what we see. Flip over to 1 Kings 19. It says, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do so severely if I don't make your life like the life of the one of them by this time tomorrow, if I don't kill you by tomorrow, may God, may the gods punish me. And guess what? Three and a half years of preparation and three and a half years of shaping and three and a half years of total dependence and three and a half years of unconditional obedience all comes to this moment where he stands up and says, haven't you seen what God can do? No. Look what it says here. Verse 3, then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, that belonged to Judah, he left a servant there, and then he went on another day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. I've had enough. God, take my life. I'm no better than my fathers. I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm just one pathetic loser. He gets all whiny. Did he just not see fire come down from heaven and obliterate everything? And within days, he's like, I, I had enough. Thing is, we can make fun of him all we want, but we do it all the time, don't we? We see God come through in an amazing way, and then one thing goes the way we don't want it to go, and we start crying about it. We start whining, God, why would you do this to me? Why won't you just stick with my plan? See, God has a plan through it all, but Elijah overreacts. He says, then he laid down and he slept under that broom tree. How did Elijah get to that point? How did he go from hero to zero that quickly? How did that happen? Well, this passage we just read, those first five verses, is a how-to guide on how to be depressed in four easy steps. Okay? The first thing is, is you wear yourself out. You outrun chariots. You go and you run and you go wear yourself out. And this whole thing, you see, he thinks somehow it's all about him. All about the things that he's doing. I'm the only one. I'm the the. The, the one that's doing all that. He even said that on the, on, the, uh, on the mountain. 
So he's worn himself out, and in the process of worrying himself out, maybe he looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, because it was still to be written a little ways down. But when it says, for in Christ Jesus, we have been given works to do. But that doesn't mean that we have to do them all. Even when we go all in, it's what we're doing in the perspective of the entire body. Sometimes we try and do everything and forget that God has others with us. So step number one is wear yourself out. Step number two is to shut others out. When he got to Beersheba, it says he left his servant. Apparently, this servant was a pretty good friend, somebody who had been with him through so many different things, and he bailed on that servant, and he went off by himself. Isn't that what we do when we feel like, oh, you're just not going to understand, so leave me alone. We build up these walls. We keep people out. We say, don't bother coming into my circle. Keep people out. One of our things is, I can't do life alone. We say, I got to do life alone. Step number two to depression. Step number three, focus on the negative. Wear yourself out, shut others out, and focus on the negative things, which is exactly what our hero here does. He focuses on the negative. He says, you know what? I've had enough. I'm just no better than my dads. No better than my ancestors. And the funny thing is, is God never asks. But he had to come up with a justification. He, he had to begin to go into this self-pity and say, this is what the problem is. And you know what self-pity I found does in my own life, and my guess it does it in yours too, is it exaggerates. It exaggerates the negative, and it leaves out the positive. When I want pity, when I want things, bad things come. None of the good things have ever happened. So we eliminate all the things that God's done, and then we let these toxic, poisonous thoughts rule our minds and rule our actions and rule our decisions, which leads to our fourth thing. If you really want to get depressed in a hurry, just forget about God. Forget about what he's done. Forget about how he's done it. See, we saw what God did in the life of Elijah. So many supernatural things. So many supernatural things. From provision with birds to provision with flour and oil to saving a kid's life, bringing him back from the dead to calling down fire from heaven. Amazing, amazing things. But then he gets to face one woman, and he says, God, you're not going to be there for me. And, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to, to go throw myself under a tree and say, I just want to die. He forgot completely about the faithfulness of God. And far too often, when I get in a place like that, I do the same thing. I, I forget completely about who God is. And that is how to get depressed in, in four easy steps. Wear yourself out, burn yourself out, to, to basically shut people out, to focus on the negative and forget who God is. But I guess the better question is, is how do we fix it? How do we get out of that funk? How do we, like we said up front, how do we focus on God and follow after God no matter what? How long are we going to waver between the two opinions? These things aren't working the way that I want them to, me being the God here. How do I fix that? How do I shift that? Well, the rest of it's found here as we close up the rest of 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to look really quick, like I said, give you an opportunity to dive deeper throughout the week. But look here at the rest of verse 5. It says, suddenly an angel touched him, and the angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked 
And there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones, a jug of water, and a jug of water. So he ate and he drank and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord returned a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, he ate, and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. First thing we see here, you just need to take a break. You need to rest and you need to eat. You need to rest and you need to eat. This is both physically and spiritually. We get so busy doing so many things that we fail to take that thing called a Sabbath. We fail to take any rest, and we wear ourselves out. Once again, first step of depression. So we need to eat, and we need to rest. And then, if you even see in there, he went to Mount Horeb. Anybody know what Mount Horeb is? It's also the same mountain where Moses got the Ten Commandments. He went to where God was at. How do we get through this funk? Go to where God is at. Go to that group of people that can pray with you and for you and alongside of you. Go to that church function that, that you can be connected. Come and hear and hear what God has to say to you to challenge you. Rest and eat. Then it says this, suddenly, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Which is a great question. God's like, uh, did we not plan for the last three and a half years for you not to be here right now? What? Why are you here? What are you afraid of? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies. And that is the truth. He has been very zealous. But the Israelites have abandoned your uh, covenant, which, by the way, was true, but isn't currently true. They're coming back around. They tore down your altars. Was true, but he rebuilt it. Killed your prophets with a sword. Was true. And I alone am left. And they are looking for me to take my life. Now, I'm not sure if you're a fan of The Office, but Dwight Schrute would say, false, brown bear. That's where we come in right here, because guess what? He just said, I'm it. I'm the only one. And God says, as we will read on, there's a whole lot more out there. 7,000, as a matter of fact, who never bailed or never kneeled down to Baal or kissed Baal, never worshipped Baal. But he says, it's all about me. God, you don't understand. It's all on my shoulders. The thing is, is the truth is, it was never Elijah's plan to begin with. It was always God's plan to begin with. And it's amazing how easy it is to follow God when fire's coming down from heaven. But when things aren't going your way, it makes it a little bit more difficult. That's why I ask, will we follow God no matter what? See, the second thing we need to see here is we need to allow God to replace our lies with his truth. And his truth is, is he is in control. He is the one with the master plan. That it's not about us, that it's about him. We have to allow God because our lies can become very powerful. Our feelings can become very powerful, even if they're not based on truth. So it says this in verse 11. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering the cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Now, was he not just in the fire just a couple of uh, weeks, days? I don't know how much time is in there. Was he not just in the fire there? 
cool thing here is you see that God doesn't always do the exact same thing. Sometimes he approaches us differently. I think part of the reason for that is, is because if we think it's the same thing, then we'll do the same thing in order for him to respond. This keeps us kind of on our toes of what God's going to do. And it says this next. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. A soft whisper. See, the third thing we have to see here is that God still speaks. But are we listening? Are we listening? See, when we're at our lowest, sometimes God speaks the softest. He, He speaks the softest. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes it's just a word. It may not be much, and it may not be loud, but it is exactly what we need to hear. And he speaks to us in that way, a gentle whisper, not the booming sign of fire from heaven every time. He's capable of doing that, but he didn't. He just spoke in a voice. And this is what it says in verse 13. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. Guess what? Same answer. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking to take my life. God speaks. Elijah answers. He's listening. Step four, when you're listening to God, do what he says. Do what he says. Because this is what he's saying. He says, remember, I've called you to something more. Not to be hiding out in a cave, not to be sleeping under some tree, not to be afraid of what the world has to offer. I've called you to something more. It says this in verse 15, and I'm going to butcher some of these names just by the let you know just ahead of time. So if you want to giggle, go ahead and do it. The Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazel, the king of Aram, and you are to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and Elijah over Shaphat from Israel about, you guys got it, you can read it there too. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, and Elijah will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, once again, every knee that is not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, you know what God's saying? Go do what I've told you to do. Go be the prophet that I've called you to be, that I've trained you to be, that I've equipped you to be. Go be that. And I believe that the Spirit of the Lord will speak to many of us today that there is something still for us to do. And a lot of times we get scared. A lot of times we step back. A lot of times we say, God, I know you came through in the past, but this time is going to be different. I know what you've called me to, but this time it's going to be different. Can I tell you right here, right now, that God will come through in his time and in his way. Just do what he's called you to do. And that is the whole story of Elijah. He says, if you're not dead, you're not done. I haven't taken your life yet, so don't ask me to die. Let's make this thing happen. Let's work together because I have a plan for your life. I want you to follow me no matter what. Follow me no matter what. It may not always be the way that you want to go, but it's exactly where he wants you to go. Follow me no matter what. Take that next step. Whether you're on the mountain of victory with fire coming down or you're in the valley of sleeping underneath a broom tree, follow me no matter what. Can I challenge you in that today to take that next step? Whatever it might be, I know some of you, we've talked about baptism, 
there's that hesitation of, well, I don't know what everybody else is going to think. I don't know what everybody else is going to say. Can I just tell you it doesn't matter? It matters what God has said and what God has called you to do. Maybe it's about taking that first step in salvation. Maybe it's about meeting Jesus right where he is at and beginning that following God no matter what, about repenting of your sins, about making that 180, saying all the gods of the world are temporary and false and empty, and I've been chasing after them, and I realize they're not doing me any good. So therefore, I need to follow after something that is real, and that is our one true God. Maybe it's about serving. Maybe it's about volunteering. Maybe it's about giving. Maybe, I don't know what it is. God is calling you to a next step. Can I challenge you to stop being hesitant and do it as he's called you to do it? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. And thank you for the way you continue to speak, even through the Old Testament, even through something that God is so long ago with people who we would assume have done so many things. I mean, culture has come along so far. At least that's what we think. But in reality, we're all just people. We're all just sinners. And we're all in need of a Savior. And God, I pray for those that are in this room right now that have not met your son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior, to realize that their sin has separated them from you, to realize that their desires and fleshly passions have separated themselves from you, but you sent your son to wipe away those sins, to create a relationship between us that we could glorify you and honor you with our life and our choosings as we follow after you. God, help us if that's the first step. Maybe there's others in here who have been dabbling world, dabbling God. Dabbling world, dabbling God. God, help us just to make a choice. If you are God, that we follow you. But those other things we want, follow them. God, speak to our hearts on what we're supposed to do. Guide us in the right way. You are a big God who can answer by fire, but also can answer in a gentle whisper. I don't know how you're speaking to people's lives today, but maybe it's in one of those two things. I pray you help us just grow closer to you. We pray all in your name.